Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Hopeless Romantic Podcast. I am Austin Chant, and this is our show. Today, we are really excited to uh, be interviewing Nicole Kimberling. Um, and Amanda's going to give you in her, her uh, bio in just a moment. Uh, but real quick, I want to mention um, our new Patreon. Uh, we mentioned this in our last episode, uh, but we are uh, going to be launching uh, or we have just launched a Patreon um, and we have some exciting uh, reward levels um, for you to check out. We'll link to that in the description. Um, but yeah, if you want to help us cover some of the costs um, of running this, that would be really great and we would really appreciate it. Um, at the at the the max reward level, you can request um, us discussing topics, which if you're ever thirsty for more of us discussing things, that is the reward <laughs> level for you. Um, I'm excited and delighted to introduce our guest for this episode, Nicole Kimberling, who is an editor and author of queer romance and literature. You might know her work in the Bellingham Mysteries or Turnskin. And um, I recently realized that I had bought um, the anthology Charmed and Dangerous and only made it through two stories before life got in the way. And then I went yesterday and read Magically Delicious, which was aptly titled. Aww, it was thanks. Magically Delicious. Um, and I, I I still have the copy of Irregulars from um, GRNW. Was that the first year or the second year that you guys had Irregulars? I think it was the second year that, that, we, that we just brought that to the to the conference yeah and that one does contain the the prequel to magically delicious yep. just the story that you just you know talked about yeah i when i opened it up and started reading it, i was like this looks awfully familiar <laughs> i know I, I just got an email from a french publisher um which is mbim bookmark hmm. and they're i guess they're translating they're thinking of translating that story and a couple of other stories from charmed and dangerous oh that's so cool so that they're an interesting company I, they've done a couple of our works already or a couple of the Blind Eye books books are in process with them. And uh, there's also an Italian publisher that's translating right now actively. You know, then, of course, all the regular mainstream publishers are, you know, some of them are still picking up MM books. So it's interesting. It's an interesting time for translation. I always wonder what the international market is is like for kind of our corner of the romance genre. I've always been sure that, you know, romance itself is popular internationally. But I was curious how much of our our corner of the genre gets sent worldwide. Well, I can only tell you about what I know, like what I've experienced. For example, we've sold uh, translation, Japanese translation rights for Jin Hale's Lord of the White Hell books to, um, I can't remember the publisher, Chuokoran, I think is what it is. Um, they do sea novels. I don't know if, if you've ever seen that imprint or if you're a big uh, boys lover Yaoi fan, but ah, they yeah. they do a, a sea novels imprint. And, you know, they also it's in the same line with Mercedes Lackey oh, and cool. Tanya Huff and, and what have you. And so that's really cool. Japanese translations are really awesome because, one, they pay a really big advance. And two, <laughs> you get this manga artist that does illustrations, at least one big spread of illustrations for that the inside. So neat. And so it. Yeah, if you are a manga fan, um, it's totally awesome because you get your your characters, you know, realized as like shonen eye characters, which I know Jin Hale really loved when, when she saw those, those <laughs> Oh pictures. my gosh, that's so cool. So obviously anybody, you know, who understands the yaoi market knows that, that there is a market for this the kind of MM or boys love, at least in Japan. I'm not sure that there's an, an enormous number of queer books being published in the rest of the world. You know, partly that's just because of the state of the book industry in the entire world. You know, there's not in some places there's very little like print market. And so um, interestingly enough, like South America, South and Central America still has an enormous print market. Oh, wow. And so we're, you know, sort of seeing if we can chop around some of our Blind Eye Books titles in Spanish, Latin American Spanish, at least, just for just because I kind of felt like doing it. I hired a Spanish translator, a wonderful, uh, wonderful girl called uh, Arate Hidalgo Sanchez to translate Jin Hill's Wicked Gentleman into Spanish. And that came out last fall. And it's, you know, it's in Castilian Spanish, like Spain Spanish. And so that's pretty different from Latin American Spanish. But there, there are a few crossover readers. And that's getting a good reception. There's not a lot of non-sheerly pornographic queer novels available in Spanish, apparently, mm -hmm. as far as I can tell from the reviews I've been reading. We've been approached, Blind Eye Books has been approached by German uh, publishers. That one didn't go through because the German editor couldn't convince her boss that there was a market for the book. 
even though she was like, I'm pretty sure there's a market for the book. And her boss is like, but this is a line of women's fiction. Why would they want to read about that? And then she was like, but Japan. And he was like, but this is Germany. And so that didn't really go anywhere. <laughs> but she tried really hard. Um, and then, like I said, there's a French translator, um, an Italian translator. I know that there's uh, one in, I want to say Holland and one in Denmark. But these are all like, you know, like they're kind of independent startup type places. Although the French one is now associated with Hachette, which is a huge publication oh, yeah. company. And so that that's a good sign for all of us that, that Hachette at least is taking an interest in that particular imprint. Yeah, I, um, I only know a, what I know about translation and translation rights is just from my work with LT3. And I know that they do translations into Spanish and French at the bare minimum. And um, I think that those have done pretty well. I actually, um, this may be a topic for another day, but I often wonder um, how many publishers include clauses for translation rights and audiobook rights, because some contracts don't seem to have those standards and some do. Well, Blind Eye Books doesn't, but that's just because we haven't had any significant reason to include them at this, you know, up until this point. But I think my Samhain contract and my Lucid contract both have both of those listed. I think it just depends on whether the press plans to produce it themselves or outsource it. Right. Because those can be, those can get extremely spendy. And um, while, while audiobooks are priced high, generally speaking, I don't, I think that you would have to publish something pretty popular in audiobook for it to see any sort of financial return. It's kind of a risk. I don't know. I know it's, it's something like I did my first audiobook this year too. It's been a, a year of like firsts for me, you know, first Spanish translation first audiobook that's produced by this company anyway. I uh, I just did it because there was a guy who I thought had the voice of my character. And I was like, hey, this guy has got to read my book. You know, he's a rapper, <laughs> you know, so he's good at like saying words clearly. And I was like, hey, you want to do it? And he's like, I've never done this before. And I was like, do you want to try to do it? He's like, yes. <laughs> How did you even stumble upon him? Oh, I worked with him. Oh, cool. I just, you know, I happened to work with him. I, I've spent like about 20 years now in the professional as a professional cook in the restaurant industry. And even though my that's sort of like my main job now is blind eye books, I still work in a restaurant just to like get to talk to other human beings like ever face to face, you know, and young people too, you know. So it's fun. It's a fun environment for me. I think I, so it's like my hobby now is, is line cooking. And then I was just standing next to this guy and he was like, telling me about his rap career. And I thought, oh my God, this guy's voice sounds exactly like my character, Keith Curry. That's kind of like my MO, both as a publisher and a person in general, is I'll kind of have a wacky idea, right? I'm like, I'll be standing there with no plans to make an audiobook whatsoever, then suddenly see a guy and think, he must make an audiobook for me. And then I'll try <laughs> to make it happen, you know? I'll, and, you know, I'll, I'll go and tell my wife, hey, I'm, I'm thinking of spending X amount of dollars to do this. And then she's like, tell me more details. <laughs> I'm like, I don't have them yet, but I will. <laughs> we'll reconvene. In about a week. <laughs> you know, the, you know, once I've convinced this person to actually do what I want them to do. I feel like if somebody approached me and was like, hey, you have the voice of my like romantic protagonist, like, would you like to do an audiobook? I would be really flattered and I would <laughs> I would be like, hell yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, he was. I mean, it only took about 15 minutes to convince him. <laughs> you know, I mean, it didn't take a long time. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that that would have been a very hard sell, especially because it would have it would have been a paying gig and like something you could put on a resume. Like just for the for me, it would have just been the novelty factor. If I worked outside of publishing, I would have been like, oh, fuck, yes, I'm doing that. Well, right. And I and I had this and I was like, and could you play the character in a book trailer? Because you have the voice and you look just like him. And I oh, happened cool. to be making a book trailer. I don't know if you've actually seen this book trailer, but it's for my uh, story. Cherry's worth getting from Irregulars. And we, my brother-in-law is a filmmaker, and so he happened to be in town. And we made this book trailer just because we kind of wanted to. And he appeared in it. So it's kind of like, it was kind of playing around like, I mean, I don't know how old you guys are, but playing around like how I used to play around when I was like 22 and like doing a zine <laughs> in my dad's office. You know, it sort of, it brings me back to that kind of creative spirit that, Sometimes gets lost when you when you enter middle age and you start to say depend on sales of your books to pay your extremely high electric bill. <laughs> what up, Puget Sound Energy? <laughs> Why? 
What up Washington as a state in terms of prices? Actually, you mentioned because you've worked in the as a line cook, I've been um, thinking about formative influences in terms of um, queer romance for me. And one of them was actually the Poppy Zebright liquor series. I don't know oh, if yeah. you ever read that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that one is that one's high up on the list. And actually, ironically, I was I was sitting down and thinking about this. And one of the first print books that I borrowed from somebody was Wicked Gentleman. Oh, yeah. Which I don't even remember when that was published, but it was... It was 2007. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like mid to late knots. It was our first title as, you know, book company. And since, Jen, you know, I just happened to know Jen Hill, she, I was like, can we publish this? And she's like, no, it's really terrible. And I was like, please, <laughs> I'll put a fake name on it. Make one up, <laughs> you know. You know, that book really took off. I mean, that book more or less made it possible for us to foresee some kind of return in the publishing company that would that would make it more than than simply a hobby because you know for line cooking is like a finite career you know you can only have it until like one of your arms falls off mm-hmm. and, and then your back just fuses you know and then <laughs> then that's it you know then, then it's all over fortunately my arm hasn't fallen off yet <laughs> so I can still like have a great time and like find interesting new people to convinced to do my wacky ideas well that's I think one one of the interesting things about this industry is how many people started out with one career and then shifted to publishing and then kind of found themselves even when they didn't financially have to keeping the day job as an editor who works full-time like it's a very isolated very strenuous job Mm. and um anything you can do to break up that monotony and get your head in a different place is super important and if I had an already existing career that I would love to go back to, I might do it just part time <laughs> just to alleviate the stress. Right. You know, it is it's pretty nice. It's pretty nice to have a hobby job. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like the girl who like drives around the golf course giving guys beer. That's a great job. But it would also be an excellent hobby job. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, I do this. And then I just drive around a golf course giving guys beer. It's fun, you know? <laughs> it's like, where can I where can I put my resume in for that? I was actually going to ask you how you got how you got your start as an editor, because it is not um it is not similar to being a line cook at all. No. <laughs> it is not. Um, how I got my start being an editor is that in two thousand and four went to Clarion, uh what was called Clarion East then, when there was such a thing as Clarion East. It was in Lansing, Michigan now. Clarion's moved to San Diego now. So, it's now so there's West. just two Wests. There's Clarion West in Seattle and regular Clarion in San Diego. I went there because I was like, well, I'm I'm writing stories and I'm not really having a lot of success in placing them. I don't know anything about this industry at all, you know, because I was at that time 34, I did understand that writing was an industry and that there's certain rules of etiquette, there's genres, there's, you know, it's not just about art. It's also about commerce. And I knew that I didn't know anything about the commerce of the industry and was probably not like such a genius that I wouldn't have to. Because um, there are those authors that are such they're such good natural storytellers that they don't have to know anything about the publishing industry. And, you know, and that's fine, but I'm not one of them. So I went to Clarion and for, I don't know if you know much about that, workshop, but it's a six-week intensive workshop where you and a whole bunch of authors all kind of live together. We were, our particular year was in a sorority house, which was pretty funny. Like we were kind of all holed up in this sorority house where we were forbidden from using the kitchen, which was weird. And I still think not legal, but (laughs) anyway, so I was there and uh, it's an intensive critiquing process. Basically, you write a story it goes to be photocopied. You get your and other people's stories. The previous night, you read them. And then the next morning, each person has two minutes to say what they think about the story. You know, and you're not required to speak. You can say, yeah, what he said. Because sometimes a lot of times that's the same. You know, like a lot of flaws in stories are like immediately obvious to everyone, except the person who wrote it. <laughs> and so while I was at this conference, uh, or I guess workshop, I started to show promise, like show signs to the other editors that were there, that I had good editorial instincts. You know, I was like, wow, I had always thought that, but 
you know, it's not like I went to college to be an editor or anything else, but I had good instincts in that direction. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe I should just try doing it, you know, because I had writer friends, obviously. If you're in a writer's group, you have writer friends. And I just started practicing on them. And, you know, I learned some kind of important stuff. Like one of my friends, indeed, Astrid Amara, she of the of the uh, many, many, many books, um, gave me once gave me a list of things I was never allowed to write on her manuscript again. Um, one of them was no, <laughs> just no, with an underline no. But that's so important. <laughs> um, I was also not allowed to write, yeah, Crimea River. <laughs> there was a couple of other ones. This guy is a wuss, I think was, or something like that. I don't remember. But definitely no was one of them. And I was not allowed to simply put a big X across a whole page <laughs> without explanation at all. And so, like, you know, they, they were my friends, obviously, uh, were incredibly good sports for letting me uh, pra basically practice editing. I mean, it benefited them, too, obviously. Like, it always benefits everybody to sharpen up a piece of creative work. One of the, I feel like one of the good things about getting into editing is that there, if you know writers, there's really never any shortage of things that need editing. And that's what's funny. Um, I think everybody who ended up editing in some capacity started out by doing it as practice or doing it as a favor for somebody, or at least that was my experience. And I think yours too. I was a beta reader for a long time and then in critique groups and then eventually started doing really laborious um, like copy and copywriting and copy editing for websites and startups, which is kind of a backwards way to get into an industry, but at least gave me a solid foundation of skills. I kind of admire you for being able to do it at all. I, like, <laughs> I, I looked at those jobs and I was thinking, man, I should try to do that. And I was like, I just can't think of things to say. They're soul killing a little and you 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 realize very quickly that your idea of quality is not their idea of quality. Like I would labor over something and they just wanted like 400 words of like slightly coherent copy. Right, right. But at least you could come up with those 400 words. I'd be like, uh, ice cream is cold. <laughs> I, I think my favorite assignment was once being tasked to write sort of an amalgam uh, review taken from like TripAdvisor reviews of a hotel that I had never been to in South Africa. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that this is like maybe a little illegal in terms of <laughs> representing. It's certainly unethical. Yeah, it's I definitely mean... unethical. But at the end of the day, I was like, I'm getting paid. My name isn't on it. It's fine. You're like, okay, whatever. <laughs> this could have been a lot worse. No, it's just, uh, I, I feel like bridging the gap between sort of the bottom of the rung practical skills you learn in any editing capacity and then working as a content editor like those two things are not the same no they're really really profoundly different mm -hmm. and like i can't actually do proofreading i'm just gonna say that straight up i'm a terrible proofreader we talked about that at grnw you were just like that's not happening ever no it's You're not like, it's not my thing <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll pay somebody else i can't i don't really care to remember all those rules you know like when there's somebody else who likes to do that and is better than me, you know. It's like they can do it. They they can do it. I can pay her. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way, but but with content editing, like I have a really good eyeball for small details, and so proofreading is is pretty fine for me. But I cannot look at some somebody else's work and kind of unspool what's going on there on a meta level. And I'm so impressed when people do that. <laughs> it's like magic. Well, you know, the thing is, you have to have like a willing partner to do that, you know, to do that kind of developmental editing. The author has to be willing to participate in the transformation of their manuscript from this thing that they made initially to a different version of the thing they made. You know, like I hesitate to say something like, you know, to give it a qualitative phrase like better, because sometimes <laughs> it's not, you know, Yeah. but it's certainly different. Yeah, it's different, you know, and a lot of times developmental editing, well, the first thing that in developmental editing that is always crucial is to discover if there is an ending to the story and if not, put one on. That's like the thing that's most left out of a story is the end part, yep. which is weird, but true. Yeah, there's there's always um, like an endless amount of middle. Right. It's, it's like you can you can't even see the horizon. There's so much middle. And then you get to the end, you're like, there's just more middle. There's no ending to this. It just petered off. I feel like it's just fatigue. It's like, I've been writing for so long. Am I not done yet? 
Well, that's the thing, too, is like writers, maybe when they're working on projects, have an outline in their head and you spend so much time perfecting that outline that you don't realize when it doesn't work anymore. And then you're at the end going like, and I tied up all of these loose ends, sort of the end submit. Like it's a completely um, separate process to figure out if what you've written actually works. Uh, I agree. And but there's another aspect to it that I think that um, many, many authors don't ever consider, which is that there's a difference, a huge, enormous difference between making a plausible narrative and making an entertaining novel. So, and it's kind of the, like the difference between making a, a ski slope, like a functional ski lift. You know, you get on it, it takes you to the top. That's what it does. It's a ski lift. And making like a roller coaster that's very exciting and that you're riding for fun that, you know, might have some function, you know, maybe, but is mainly for fun. And so a lot of times with content and developmental editing, one of the things that, that is addressed is adding something to a manuscript that just makes it more fun for the for the reader, you know, like, like, you know, this maze needs a monster. It needs a big one, a big monster. This maze is going to be here. There's got to be a monster in it. That's the way mazes work. <laughs> and I think to to some authors, when, you know, they, they can't see the difference between that and a cliche or a trope. And it is a trope, like a monster with a maze is a trope. But it's a trope that as soon as the reader sees the maze, they're like, oh, my God, I cannot wait to find out what monster is in this maze. But then if you get to the maze in the middle and there's nothing, they're just like, I want my money back. <laughs> there was no creamy center in this Twinkie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I completely agree. That is that is a really, really good point. I feel like as an author over and over, I, I catch myself doing stuff and then feeling like I need to justify and kind of pare it back in that way to the point where I make it really dull because it's no it's no longer filled with that that sense of like I'm doing this for fun and I'm doing it so that someone who's reading it who has gotten into this experience to have a good time is allowed to just have a good time like it gets it's so easy to get it bogged down in that like well and now I have to step back I don't know it, it's like you have to justify having a good time but if somebody's there for, to have that good experience, you're giving them what they hand, want. Yeah, their audiences are willing to hand wave a certain amount. Like they will inherently accept things if they're well written or entertaining, both at the same time, <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> one on their own. So, like Nicole said, with tropes, um, when you fail to deliver a, a trope, or when you you feel like you need to step back from it, pare it down, make it. This is the thing. At the end of the day, I don't read fiction because I want to read stories about boring people like me. <laughs> I want to read stories that are transformative and elevate me and engage the part, the creative part of my imagination that I've had since I was a kid. Like, I would just read a computer manual if I wanted to be bored. <laughs> so... <laughs> I don't know. It's a it's a funny line to walk as a as a reader, an editor, and an author. Because as an editor, I I hope I'm not too pedantic and like, are these really the things that these people would be doing if they lived, you know, on Earth? But also, um, as a as a writer, I'm that person. I'm that person who's getting in my own way, going, that doesn't seem like a plausible scenario. That seems like it's just in there for laughs. Well, like, yeah, it is because. Otherwise, your readers are going to be bored shitless. Right. And I think there's a couple of a, a couple of things I would add to that. And one is if writers are kind of writing along and they find that they're writing something extremely boring because they're worried about it not being accurate, what they're really worried about is the comment section of Goodreads. <laughs> yeah. You know, letting you know all the ways in which you failed. But you should never think about the comment section of Goodreads ever, ever, there. ever. Ever. You should never, place. ever look at it <laughs> if you're writing a book, especially not your own book. Yeah. Like, just never. Just don't go there. Don't do it. You know, go there once to link your social media to Goodreads and then leave forever. <laughs> I legitimately, um, I have a friend who pretty much knows that they can't look at their own reviews and they shouldn't. I, I, I feel like that can be a huge hindrance to an author actually getting work done and not being demoralized. So occasionally what I'll do is I'll go through and find like nice, vaguely constructive things and like paste them into a document and be like, look at these. They're nice and vaguely constructive. They're not completely, 
like ad hominem attacks. <laughs> right. And, you know, and having just said that, I have to say that I do actually end up reading almost all of my <laughs> of course. Goodreads reviews because I have to post them, especially for Turnskin. Like my edit, my job as editor applies to my own book too. So I have to try to find quotes <laughs> and, you know, try to, you know, and I just sort of go through and, and look at them. And, you know, fortunately, I'm old enough that I've been criticized a lot in my life and just in general for various things. And I'm kind of like, yeah, whatever. It's your opinion. Yeah. Although there are some reviewers who I go to and I read their reviews of my work because I think they're really good. You know, like um, Sirius from Dear Author, I always read, if she reviews one of my stories, I always read it. But I always read, you know, her reviews of the Blind Eye Books things anyway. But, you know, but I especially make sure to read it because if there is something that's just kind of, Maybe I I was just kind of being lazy about, she's like, this was a little lazy, you know, or, you know, she's not, you know, she's got a very good sense. And so there are those reviewers who I look at like, almost like they were critique partners, but I certainly don't go out of my way to like ever find like random reviews if I'm not trying to assemble like a metadata sheet for my print distributor or something mm -hmm. like that. You know, like I don't, as an author, I just avoid doing that entirely. Actually, I have a question that just occurred to me. As an uh, an editor who also writes, who edits your stuff? That's like, an interesting question. If it's for Blind Eye specifically, because I imagine if it's for somewhere else, that's an obvious answer. But who edits your stuff at Blind Eye? Turnskin was edited by Tania D. Johnson, who is the author of Smoketown, which is another one of our Blind Eye books titles and who I met at Clarion. I, you know, I'd been a critique group with her. And so I hired her to do to edit that book. And then, of course, I edited her book. And both of those books won awards, which nice. goes to say that if you have like lesbian on lesbian editorial action, <laughs> you know, you can really, really get a lot of like good things going <laughs> for that. Um, Smoketown won. It's the Carl Brandon Parallax Award, which is for I think it's the novel by a person of color. But um, but yeah, so that one won that award. Turnskin won the Lambda Literary Award. And so you know, we just had a kind of a nice sensibility going the only other Blind Eye book book that I have had a story in was Irregulars, The Cherry is Worth Getting. And that was edited, like the content edit was by Josh Lanyon, because we all, in that book, it was me, Josh Lanyon, Astrid Amara, and Jen Hale. And so what we did was we just all swapped stories. And so Josh did the content edit for that one. And then the continuity edit for the entire thing was done by one of my uh, young editorial associates named Gemma Every Hope Broser. She was she went through and made all of our interpretations of that world match, which was pretty hard because mm -hmm. we had all written different terms for everything, you know, so that was kind of a whatever. But so the upshot is, yeah, I do always hire an editor for my work. That's what I assumed. But it's just one of those situations where when you are an editor, being edited is such an interesting process. Because it's different when you you have like a contract with Sam Hain and you, you're like, okay, well, their in-house editors are going to take care of this. But when it's a company that you work for and you're sort of the managing editor of, I imagine it would be a little intimidating for the editors or the authors who are sort of stepping into that role to um, tell you what's what. I don't think Tania was intimidated by me at all. <laughs> I don't think that's even possible <laughs> for her to be intimidated by me. She's just way too cool to ever be intimidated by the likes of me. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. It's I, I, I could see that that would be kind of a thing, but not not if you have a peer relationship already. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like it would be uncomfortable for me. Like too close to the process? Too close to the process. Right. I mean, like distance definitely can be of use when you're in, a, in the position of being edited and you're also an editor. But I think, you know, I think other editors kind of like, I, I, I know I like working with authors who are also editors because they're way less mean. <laughs> you know, like, like authors are really mean to editors. They do a lot of really just aggressive, mean stuff. They're very defensive. I'm sorry, authors. But you are defensive. My favorite thing ever is when I've edited for someone in the past and I felt like they didn't get me and I guess I didn't get them. And it it almost felt like borderline acrimony, like the entire process. Right. And then I'll be done with it. I'm like, oh, 
done with that edit. Don't have to look at that again. And then I'm contracted to edit for them later. And I feel like that's going to go one of two ways. It's happened to me. It either is like the same experience of acrimony or both of us have loosened up. It's like, maybe you get me now. Maybe you get that like the way I explain things, my turn of phrase, the the sort of humor I have isn't actually like smug. It's not condescending. Right. It's earnest. Yeah, it's it's tricky. Like I haven't um, edited for um, books ever, but I worked for a student publication as an editor and considered going into editing and then realized I wasn't very good at it. And so quit that. But that was actually the hardest thing for me when I was uh, studying editing. Um, I took a certificate program and trying to figure out how to politely phrase things in a way that I knew would not piss off an author was absolutely the hardest part, I felt like. Well, it's a landmine. You don't really know because what works on one author, um, like your particular style, your particular vibe works on one author, but completely not on the next one. So you have to kind of play it by ear. And I've just learned to just be me all the time. Like, don't try and be more friendly, less friendly, more professional, less professional, because you're not going to make everyone happy with that anyway. And and also you can't maintain that for a novel length piece. You can't pretend to be someone that you're not. The only thing you can do, I think, is to remember that if you are frustrated with a piece of text, the author isn't doing it on purpose to annoy you, (laughs) you know? And so you shouldn't take out your annoyance with the text on them by writing, you know, like some ill-conceived comment that's just going to shut down the entire editorial process. On the other hand, you know, like... There's not a lot, in a way, you have to be a little bit callous to be an editor ever because you have, you're sort of in the business of, of telling people their baby is ugly. And, and maybe like if you put a bow on your baby, it would be less ugly, you know, like that, that kind of thing. But you have to say it in a different way. Put it in a yeah. pretty outfit. I, I, one of the things that I remember coming up in my certificate was like, you know, you're there to serve the reader, not the writer. Yeah. And I think it's easiest to get authors on board when you actually point that out. You know, if you're as an editor coming across this kind of like relentless resistance to like, say, speeding up places where it's getting a little repetitive or boring, saying that you're advocating on behalf of the reader is a completely valid thing to say. Like maybe have a little mercy on the reader and and let them get through this part a little bit faster because it it's not something that the reader hasn't already experienced. Going to Walmart is something they probably have already done. <laughs> so you want to make it more interesting for them and just have a little pity on the person who has bought your book. And, you know, and, and that actually works because then it, it sort of takes it outside of the realm of art versus criticism and puts it more into a commercial product, which is what the editorial process is about. It's about taking an artistic piece and turning it into a commercial product. That's just the breaks of it. That's what it is for. Most of my editorial letters and and sort of my introductory comments are about talking, because editing is such a um, subjective process anyway, that I, when I'm editing, one half of me is always thinking about like if I were the audience, because I'm the first audience really that the book sees, like what is my knee-jerk reaction to something? And I'll usually write that down and then save it for myself later to come back and be like, by the way, this is what, you know, like the less terse, rude version of it. Um, But I think that that's an important thing for authors to keep in mind, which I reiterate throughout the editing process, which is I am one person with one opinion, but when it's a problem this big, I think other people are going to notice it. Like some stuff I'm willing to let go because of stylistic choice or they're married to it. And And it just doesn't matter. Yeah, it just doesn't matter. I'm willing to let it go. I'm like, you can have that. You can die on that hill. But then some stuff that they maybe might not even consider a big deal, I'll really push for. Because I, at the end of the day, know myself, my skills, and my reaction as a reader enough to be like, that would be a problem for me if I read this book. This is where I would get hung up and like put the book down, get bored, go make myself a sandwich and never come back to it. Exactly. And there there are a few other pitfalls, I think, that authors don't realize that they are falling into that are basically impossible to understand from inside yourself as an author. One of them is your own level of reading comprehension. Authors have a higher level of reading comprehension generally than the average population. And so oftentimes there'll be a conflict uh 
where I'd be asking for an edit to help readers who are not extremely high level readers, you know, just give them a hand, you know, make sure to finish that sentence that some people can infer, but, you know, people with lower level of reading comprehension won't be able to infer it. Speakers of English as a second language will never get it. And that's an, that's because MM is pretty much only in English right now. It's a huge deal. There are so many readers who are English as a second language readers. And for them, you don't want to make the sentences as hard as humanly possible to understand, even if the gymnastic capacity of that sentence is incredibly fun. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, maybe leave a couple of those unbelievable tricks in the manuscript just for the people who will appreciate them, but lay off of them in scenes where something else fundamentally important is happening. Basically put the gymnastics in the dull scenes and use very straightforward language in, for example, action scenes where it's already very hard to visualize what's going on just because it's hard to visualize anything anyway. Mm -hmm. And if you have an action scene, like say with more than two people in it, then that's even more difficult and needs more just straightforward language. And so reading comprehension is something that I personally talk to authors about quite a bit because, as I said, authors generally have a higher level of reading comprehension and they don't understand that they have been confusing just by having fun being tricky. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's easy, I think, as an author to to get in that space where it's like, I know what I mean. And to, you know, you have an idea in your head and then you try to get it out as comprehensively and as comprehendably as as possible. Um, you try to get that out there and sometimes you don't succeed. And like you might remember your own shorthand for the significance of whatever, but that doesn't necessarily mean that someone else does. When I was writing um, Coffee Boy, that like I, I did the thing, I think I've mentioned this before, but like. I didn't put in any details about what the characters were feeling ever. I just expected that to be clear through like the significant facial expressions that they made or like looks exchanged. And then I reread it and all of a sudden realized that there was there was just no roadmap for an, a reader to follow at all. It was completely like it was like they were miming this love story like here we we are two people who are in love but you'll never we'll never say so you'll never hear that from the author we'll never even think about it <laughs> yeah you just need to interpret that from the fact that they looked at each other on page 60 yeah i was the editor for coffee boy and i think you would actually realize that before it got to me i did a i did a substantial edit for that um <laughs> based on my own sudden horrified intuition of what i had done <laughs> That's amazing. I'm, I'm glad to know that, actually, because I, I think you may have mentioned it to me and it slipped my mind. I think there were a couple of places where I asked for more like emotional. Yeah, there were. And uh, that was something I think I may have I may have mentioned it when I sent it to you. I was like, I realized that I did this horrible thing. Please <laughs> corral me. The only note I got from you was that you would use the word just seven billion times. <laughs> that was that I think too. It. I'd used I had two point five or something justs per page. Oh, that's painful. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> that's the that's the part of me like I try really hard to be a, a dev editor slash content editor on my first pass of anything but because I have like a dual brain one half of me is already copy editing it or at least line editing it right and I'm sitting there like no it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if there's unnecessary adverbs it doesn't matter if that hyphen is incorrect you can fix it later but that's just how my brain works and sometimes you have to give in to your own horrible habits and uh, return a manuscript to an, to an author and be like, I'm sorry, there's 2000 like tracked line changes in addition to my hardcore comments. It, it's not necessary because you'll rewrite all of this anyway. But I, my brain likes to look at things that are clean and it helps me understand meeting better. Horrible habit that I encourage no editor get, to get into. Same thing that um, Sam Durr does understands my pain, understands the horrible compulsions within me <laughs> to change people's hyphens on like the second pass. <laughs> I um I have done that before, but stop myself because at a certain point it becomes ridiculous. Mm -hmm. If you're going to if if a scene's not going to be there anyway, there's no point in yeah. like killing yourself trying to make the m dashes correct. 
But, yeah. you know, like sometimes it is actually hard because your hand just kind of does it automatically. It's like playing piano. Mm-hmm. Your hand just kind of goes there and does the little thing. And then you're like, damn, did it again. <laughs> Insert advanced symbol. I feel like I feel bad. I feel badly for authors who have been edited edited by me and maybe on their first or second pass they got a pretty cohesive and thorough like line edit in addition to some content fiddling and then maybe they'll submit another manuscript and the entire like first three passes are all dev and all content like this one was harder (laughs) this one I couldn't fiddle I feel like that is kind of what one I like things clean but I also feel like if a story doesn't need a significant amount of work I can just get right. The like if you know there's only two scenes that are really confusing, then yeah, why not? You yeah. know, sure, go ahead. Knock it out of the park. And then they, then it only has to come back to you one time for like a few pages and that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and some people are much, much more difficult to, to edit than others, not because they're difficult people, but just because the writing is very dense, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, any kind of author who has a lot of poetry in their writing, it's incredibly difficult to do the line edit for because the images are knit into the sentences so closely, you know, that it's very, very hard to do the line edit. There are some authors who, I think myself included, who their sentences are kind of like Legos that you can snap them apart and snap them back together in a different configuration and you can barely notice. But there are other authors who are like Tania Johnson, for example, who's who has so much poetry in every single line that it just doesn't work that way to do it. It's you can't you know snap the sentences apart and then just reconfigure them to change the time to like correct a timeline error or something like that. Yeah, no, they become completely incoherent. In order to have like sort of a substantial block of text to give back to an author, which my editorial process is really bizarre. By the way, I just like to mention this. I return the manuscript. I'll get up to like say page, I don't know, a hundred, and return the manuscript and be like. Let's talk about these first hundred pages. And, you know, if especially if there's scenes like if I want the beginning to be have more of a hook or punchier, let's let's work on this part first and then proceed forward. Because one of the dangers of just writing like a big, long editorial letter is that it will completely, completely miss the point of the novel. Mm. And you'll be accidentally removing the heart of a novel. But also it's difficult to gauge how much work an author will want to put into a particular piece. Some of them are more important to that to an author than another. You know, like if something is very close to their heart, they'll want to put a lot of work into it, but it'll also be like there'll be a lot of things that they do not want to change and they're deal breakers and that's fine because it's their book. Or in other cases it'll be like, I think this entire ending needs to go. They're like, yeah, you got a better idea. I'm like, maybe, you know, <laughs> and they're okay with that. You know, it's 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 not even like authors are consistent about that. It's just each work is its own thing and it's unique. So I the editorial process with me is unbelievably laborious and workshop-like. I feel sorry for authors who work with me actually because it takes so long. It takes like <laughs> months. Or, I mean, if it's a very short piece, I guess it only takes weeks. But it takes a long, long time just because if, if I buy a book, it's because I am really excited about it and I want to make it as awesome as it could be and I can see that it could be awesomer, usually. There's been a few exceptions to that where I just bought something like, yep, that's more or less perfect. And in that case, the author's like, no, it's not. <laughs> Come on. I wanted Come you on. to vivisect it. I wanted you to remove like 300 pages. I was like, no. <laughs> Go on to your next project now, you know. <laughs> but, you know, everybody is, you know, approaches their creative work like in a different way. And, and everybody is is different. People are extremely extremely individual you just have to take each it's like a case-by-case basis yep that's why it's so um funny when you start to develop a relationship with authors and they still manage to surprise you like oh no they'll take this edit fine they took an edit like it you know they were fine with rewriting their their entire third act last time and then you send it to them and they're like how dare you right (laughs) right it's like i didn't know you liked that guy i'm sorry (laughs) i'm sorry i was advocating for his death (laughs) i didn't realize he was your dad in the story but like put in the story i'm not trying to kill your dad he's fine i've met him it's nice (laughs) 
kind of want to kill him in this story. Is that okay? Can we do that? So, <laughs> no, it's off the table now, I guess. All right. I'm sorry that I'm murdering the avatar for your father. I that's, know. <laughs> that's really like, did you find that out after or did you know going into it? I did some detective work and figured it out. <laughs> I was like, this is nonsensical. This this is something that should not be a problem. Why? Why? And then I just kind of sleuthed it and then figured out that it was plainly, you know, a, a representation of a real person who had to be more or less stay intact and then, you know, and then, you know, figure out what's interesting about when authors base characters on real people is that oftentimes they'll err in some incredibly bizarre way to either make the character way too perfect or way too hideous. You know, they'll like, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll be thinking, oh, I gotta, I gotta put some flaws into dad and then only show flaws. <laughs> and you're like, this person is horrible. <laughs> they're like, no, he's not. It's like, yeah, he is <laughs> absolutely awful. You forgot to write the good things. Or the, 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 the inverse, you know, you only wrote the things that would appear on like a Facebook profile. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that this character is not this without sin. It's yeah, just, it's just not, not possible. So that's that's the danger. But, you know, oftentimes characters based on real people are, are often the stars of the book. But there's, they're problematic, but they're also worth it. So yeah, I would never encourage anyone to, like, not base their characters off of real people that they've met. But just don't ever tell them. Yeah, no. Because they get really upset yeah. about it. So I wanted to move us on to um, a different topic because I was looking at the Blind Eye website to see what your submission policies were because mm-hmm. I had looked at them before but I wanted to refresh and I noticed at the bottom it was like a list of like these are things that the editor is tired of yes and one of the ones that I mean they were all amusing but one of the ones that really killed me was like no second person yeah <laughs> second person I think second person is the most the least used and yet the most hated of all POVs it's like the voice of passive aggression Really, is what it is. I think we just found, oh, we can't, I was going to say, I think we just found our episode title, The Voice of Passive Aggression. And then I realized that it would be like, The Voice of Passive Aggression with Nicole Kimberly. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) No, I think that, I think the words passive aggressive don't describe me at all. (laughs) I mean, ever. Be aggressive (laughs) about second person. (laughs) It is. Like, I, I feel as though I'm being like passive aggressively nagged by second person that is such an interesting point i'd never thought of it that way but that makes a lot of sense i just can't suspend my disbelief i am not this person stop trying to make me think that i'm this person i didn't go to the store (laughs) i didn't kiss that boy see see what i mean it's just (laughs) someone trying to hypnotize you (laughs) badly (laughs) usually right i've read some i've read some really good like literary like experimental fiction that was in second person but it was weird on top of its pov so it wasn't like someone tried to write tried to write a romance or even like spec that way right traditional narratives uh, more or less require they're they're generally best i think in third person past tense Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i feel like the one the only time that i particularly have enjoyed second person it's when it's written in such a way that makes it clear that the you is a character and is not the reader but a lot of times it just comes off like you said like that hypnotizing thing and it's it's really only interesting when you're like the you becomes a specific character that you can recognize as well. Well, sure. Like that happens a lot in poetry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. For just that purpose. Yeah. So uh, that cracked me up. The the no second person cracked me up. Uh, What was the other thing? Basically, one of the things that I knew about Blind Eye before I sort of had any face-to-face encounter with you or maybe even saw you on the panel was that you guys are really selective and that you don't publish well you're just really selective but you also don't publish uh, a ton of manuscripts a year um what what's your average per year two oh wow that is a long time with a book it is a long time with a book yeah how long how much of that is production and how much of it is just reading it and deciding if you know what I mean? Like how much of it is like, I'm reading this, I'm editing it. And then we start the long, slow crawl towards putting it in a print book. Yeah. I think initially it had to do because we're traditionally, we, we had started out doing traditional print runs. So like that's cost that's prohibitively expensive mm-hmm. to do that. That's amazingly expensive. Um, we're moving to POD for some titles now just so we can have more titles 
if they if I happen to like them. But I just don't like a lot of things, honestly. I'm not a voracious reader. I never have been. And I have to be in love with a book enough to actually engage with the book in my horribly long editorial process. I have to love it a lot. And I have to think it has something to say that hasn't been said before, that we haven't done before, or what have you. It has to be, to me, a standout somehow. In addition to that, I have to feel like the author cares about it as much as I do, which sounds strange. But a lot of authors, when they begin the editorial process, they abdicate their uh, connection to the manuscript because it's too painful for them to edit. So like, because that's so, so common, I have to actually kind of feel the author out and see like, all right, like, are you going to, are you going to (laughs) quit halfway through (laughs) this? Because I don't want you to quit, but sometimes it's like very, very, very hard, you know? And so, you know, like I'm, I'm extremely selective for that reason, you know, first just because of the content, but also because I have to really believe the author has something to say and wants to say it badly enough to actually go through the horrible, grueling ordeal of editing a book with me. (laughs) Ask anyone who's done it. I'm really not joking. I'm not making this like an exaggeration. It's true. That's the, I love that, that I know this now. Like I kind of assumed that you were thorough, but I love that. Um, I love that it's, it's almost like a hard sell. Like don't, don't submit to blind eye unless you're prepared to have like a collaborative, like every editing experience is collaborative and transformative, but like you, you got to have an affair for a little while. Yeah. Kind of, kind of, you know, and, and I got to want to like hang out with you for months and months, like for hours a day. Yeah, you you want to have. I mean, you want to have roommates in the form of those characters. It's yeah. it's it's a weird headspace to be in. I've never spent um uh, longer. I ha- I've spent a long time on some projects, but they they're usually like cyclical. They'll come back to me later stages. Yeah, but I've never spent like a a chunk of months on one project in particular that wasn't my own. Mm-hmm. So that would be that would be a mind fuck. I don't I don't know. I think I would like buckle down crying towards the end of it like I would just I don't know something about having someone else's characters in my headspace for six months which is actually I would say really what you would find in more traditional print publishing yeah well in the 40s you know like like that (laughs) in in the 1940s that's that's how it was I don't that I don't think any modern person does that now except for me (laughs) How is it when you're um, revising your own work? Do you try to kind of replicate that experience with other editors that are editing for you? Or is it a, is it a different process? Oh, I would if I could find one. But like, there's no, so far, nobody else who, it's a painful level of investment for the editor. And so I don't think I would require that of anybody who was not so in love with a piece of my work. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, like, that's a lot. It's a long time to spend thinking about somebody else and their characters and their story. And, you know, for the most part, outside of the industry, no one will ever know that you worked on that piece. No one will ever understand that you cared about that novel at least as much as the author. So um, so in that way, it's pretty unrewarding, you know, except that at the end of it, there's this amazing thing. But I think that, um, you know, I like collaborating with people and doing things. That's one of the reasons why I'm here doing this podcast with you is that I really enjoy synergetic creative experiences. And so that's probably why I, you know, one of the reasons why I'm so excited about, you know, thinking about a book as if it was my own for an extremely long period of time, you know. I wanted to ask you about, um, like I was looking at blind eye submission uh, policies as I saw. And do you feel like you guys are sort of the, maybe not the home, but a home for like fantasy and spec? Because obviously I don't think pretty much anything you've published would be easily marketed as like a simple, cute, you know, MM romance or FF. Like it's all been pretty rooted in either literary fiction or fantasy or speculative. Like, do you feel like you would be uncomfortable moving outside of that arena as an editor? Oh, no, not at all. 
we started off as a science fiction and fantasy press mm-hmm. because that's what we, you know, that's what I wrote. Yeah. And so that's what I understood best. But now that I, when I started writing mysteries, for example, and I learned how to do them, like the mechanics of a mystery, I've just, I've actually just acquired a mis- like the next book that's coming out it's by Del McLean. It's called Bitter Legacy, and it's a police procedural set in London. Um, it's a contemporary, it has no specific element whatsoever. And it's just a, like a, like a straightforward kind of cop chase and killer fallen in love story. And it's brilliant. It's wonderful. I love it. It's a new author who doesn't know that like, this isn't how editing happens yet, which is great. Get in there. Make you know, but I, impressions. I feel like I'm only going to have her for, for a couple of books though, because she's going to level up to a bigger publisher <laughs> and that's fine. That's good. <laughs> But yeah, so we're we're actually starting a new imprint. The Blind Eye Books imprint is for specfic only. Our definition is broad, but that was the point of it. And this new imprint, which is called One Block Empire, is specifically for mystery and contemporary. Right now, we've only got the one, you know, story for it for One Block because I'm not. I think there's some specfic elements of Blades of Justice, and so it might actually fit more better in the in the Blind Eye than in than in One Block Empire. But yeah, so we actually are branching out, but again, it's it's the a case where you know I'm I'm looking looking around trying to find authors who I want to work with and whose stories I'm in love with, and kind of nosing around trying to like find someone to like as you said have a date with for like six months, you know. So it it just takes me an incredibly long time. It's just an interesting thing because. If you look at raw numbers, it might be true, but there's a lot of emphasis on like, well, contemporary, like pure contemporary romance is what's going to sell. And honestly, like as an editor and a reader, I'm really only drawn to genre fiction. Like I'll read contemporary, but I have to really like the author or the premise has to sound. It has to have like a really strong plot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it's easy to not have a plot in contemporary. It's so easy. Yeah. I've gotten halfway through writing something and realized, like, wait a minute. <laughs> Nothing happens in this. <laughs> it's just character? Like, it's okay. Um, yeah, I think that to write a really, really good contemporary, the author has to have such acuity in relating emotional experience and also have, have a, a unique slant, like the constellation of the family of the two characters or some the conflict that they're facing they have to have something to say about it. Yeah. Or they have to just have all the feels in the world and be able to put feels in where feels have no right being. <laughs> <laughs> but people will love it because that's what they're reading the book for, is for the feels. Yeah. So there's there's a couple of different ways to approach contemporary in that way. It just makes me feel <laughs> it just makes me think about my my blank. Your blank feelings. My no my no feelings uh contemporary. <laughs> Which is hilarious because it was contemporary. And honestly, like the central conceit of that, like the, the plot of that story was like a man like works as an intern in an office and fetches a lot of coffee. Sure does. And that's the story. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, wow, I'd have a great time writing a pitch for that. <laughs> <laughs> but the the thing is, is like, even though you didn't imbue it with like all of the feels on the first round, like before I even saw it, the writing um, was snappy and accessible, which is, I think, so important for contemporary. Like, it's important for every genre, but I think the most important for contemporary when it isn't plot driven necessarily. Well, and the feels got there eventually. I felt like that book was one that I didn't really get into until I wrote a scene that was really, really emotional. Um, and then all of a sudden was able to look back from that on the rest of the book and be like, oh, <laughs> now they feel things. Okay, I'm going to work backwards from here. <laughs> Feelings are occurring at this point. Mm-hmm. I've got to seed them. A sudden, a sudden spring. <laughs> like a freshet. <laughs> a freshet of feels. I feel like that might be the name of the episode. Or, you know, like <laughs> one of the freshet of feels. Oh, yeah. that'd be cute. That would be That's so a cute. good one. I learned that word from a Josh Lanyon novel. <laughs> I didn't know that word before. The best compliment I ever got in my entire life was from this guy that I worked with. And it was like right when Turnskin, or uh, sorry, it was a, another novel I wrote called Happy Snack came out. And I was working in a restaurant and he was like one of the front of the house staff. And he had read it because he's a science fiction fan. And I was like, hey, how you doing? And he's like, well, I read your book, you know, I, like, 
because you never ask any, if anybody's read your book, right? Because you just don't want to know. It's a lot of it's right. A lot. It's very awkward. Anyway, so like, he's like, "Hey, I read your book," and I was like, "Hey, yeah, thanks. That was great." And he's like, "You know what it was like?" And I was like, "What was it like?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just terrible. I'm just standing at the espresso machine, going, "Okay." And he said, it was like being trapped in an elevator with you for three and a half hours while you told me this really long, funny story. Oh, my gosh. And that's the best compliment that I've ever gotten in my life. Well, that's where you know you've got a hell of a voice in that. Well, right. And and that's so I think that, you know, like whenever I think of contemporaries and, and voice and stuff like that, I think, okay, like if someone could listen to you tell this story for three hours in a in an elevator, then you've got the voice. Yeah. If there's no, if it doesn't end in like bodily injury, right. <laughs> you have a good story. So I think we're actually pretty close to wrapping up, but in lieu of our normal, like such and such press has a call for submissions. You are in luck because Nicole and I are two of the editors, the other editors, uh, Samantha Durr. We are coordinating and editing the stories in an anthology that will be benefiting. Oh my God. I've forgotten how to speak English. So the cool thing about this anthology is that it is the product of a game that we play at Gay Romance Northwest, which is... Character type love match. Character type love match. Where, and it's an audience participation game. It's tournament style thing. Um, and I, I believe that they they figure out who wins the character type love match by applause or something like, like that. Like hands raised. Oh, hands raised. Anyway, so at the beginning of the game, people throw out these crazy characters like, you know, mage, cyborg, or sexy mountain recluse, or whatever. And they all, all these characters go on the board. And then eventually, at the end of the game, it's winnowed down to this uh, couple, the year's couple. And so the first year that, that we did it, it was soldier and tattoo artist. And the second year that we did it, which is last year, uh, it was mage and cyborg. And of course, the participants, the reading reader participants of the conference were kind of hoping that the authors at the conference would, you know, maybe like write that story. And so then we're like, hey, maybe we should try to encourage the writing of that story. And so that's how the anthology was born is that this is the place where if you have a little short mage and cyborg story or soldier on tattoo artist story, write it, send it to us, especially if you actually plan to come to the Gay Romance Northwest conference or if you were there or, or whatever, you know, like, don't be shy. Like, don't don't think that, you know, because you're not published yet or, or whatever, that you can't participate in this. Your work will get in front of our eyes and, you know, yeah, read could, it. <laughs> yeah, this could be a really interesting opportunity, especially for people who, for whatever reason, haven't made it out to GRNW yet. Yeah. Um, because it will benefit GRNW and it'll be read by not only readers who are in attendance, but um, editors and authors as well. Right. You know, and at, at this point, um, I know that Jen Hale is going to have a story in it. And I believe that Austin, you're going to have a story in it, correct? Yes. And I'm really excited. So, yeah. And so, I mean, so we know like at least two people, you know, that you'll bring your audiences to this anthology because the story is going to be exclusive. You know, it's the way that people will be able to read it is to read it in this anthology. And so, you know, your story could be there too. You know, I don't mean you, Austin. I mean, or like uh, you know, <laughs> the, the listeners. Your story could be there alongside their stories, you know, for readers to discover. And so I, I think it is quite an opportunity. Yeah, I think one of the cool things about anthologies in general are that they allow new blood to come and mingle with old blood. Mm -hmm. um, it's where you discover a lot of fresh new voices and people are putting their best foot forward or their first foot forward right. in many cases. I am a huge fan of the opportunities that anthologies provide. So this is our call for submissions. Nicole and I and also Samantha Durr, who's the third editor of the antho would love for you guys to submit i will include a link to the submission information and you should check that out at your leisure all right that is our show for this week i want to say a huge thank you to nicole kimberling for being on the podcast it was really great to talk to you um and I had nowhere else to go with that. Um, it was really <laughs> awesome to talk with you, and I had a great time. Um, as always, if you would like to connect with us on social media, uh, talk about editing, talk about anything else, um, we are on Twitter. I am at Austin Chanted. I am at Amanda H. Jean, and unfortunately, Nicole is not on Twitter. <gasps> I, I am. I just got on Twitter, in fact. <gasps> you just oh got my on goodness. Twitter. I will have to can, follow you. I don't remember we... what my thing is, though. Well, I'll <laughs> I'm on Facebook, though. 
I know you are on Facebook. I will link your social media in the doobly doo in the episode description. Oh God, I think I said in the doobly doo. I said a John Green thing, and I am ashamed of myself and put my head in the sink. Um, I'll include um, I'll include links to Nicole's social media. I'm really excited that we can exclusively reveal on the Hopeless Romantic that Nicole Kimberling has Twitter. <laughs> it's your big debut. It's my big Twitter debut. I can now I can now ignore tweets. <laughs> yep. Thank you so much for having me. It was a Thank pleasure. you for being here. Awesome. <laughs> we said that simultaneously. It was terrible. <laughs> We're the worst. All right. Thanks for joining us, folks, and see you next time. This episode of The Hopeless Romantic was produced by Dario DeFore with graphics by Keezy Young and music composed by Carly Ann Warden. Follow us on Twitter at VHR Podcast, add us on Facebook, and please rate and review on iTunes if you enjoyed. <laughs>